0: Thanks, Will. Man, I don't know what to do now. (laughs) Um, Will told me I wasn't going to get this until we were done with Exodus. (laughs) He must have given up. (laughs) Man. All right, well, I don't know what to say. Um, I'll say this. uh, Let this be a testimony that it's not the man behind the pulpit that it's the word of God being proclaimed from the pulpit. Um, we always joke around as the elder board and in the serious thought of, Okay, well what would happen, you know, Nathan, if something happened to you and you couldn't get up there and preach and we always joke around and say, What well, what would happen if a bus hit you and you're coming to church or something like that? You know what you know what would happen here at Country Oaks? Someone would get up here and preach the word of God. So this is this is a testimony to that, so. Uh, I Will shared the whole story, I'm sure, but it's a testimony to Andy's faithfulness for all those years. Um, somewhere in here is a part of that old pulpit. <laughs> and uh, what, a, what a special day. I had no idea. Uh, like I said, Will asked me if I trusted him, and I said, I, well, I did. Until <laughs> you asked that. <laughs> and the security team comes and grabs you. All right. I'm going to get my thoughts together. Okay. If you would, open up the Word of God to Exodus 32. Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Starting verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Your Lord, our God, our Father, Lord, God, I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you for the narrative of the Exodus, Lord, and, and the book of Exodus, Lord, that we see, Lord, that you are a just, holy God, Lord, a God that's wrathful towards sin. Yet, Lord, in such a beautiful way, we also see that you're merciful and gracious, and through that, Lord, you are glorified. God, we see those two things come together in this passage as you are just to be wrathful towards Israel, yet at the same time, Lord, you relented from that wrath. You showed the mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that this morning as we walk through this passage and finish the sermon that got started last week, Lord, that that your grace and mercy, Lord, would be be put on display. Be with us in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord relented. Again, that's God's mercy. Today we are uh, finishing the the two-part sermon series uh, from Exodus 32, 7 through 14. I, I said last week, that there's three points uh, in the sermon, and really three different parts of of this passage, but the three points were God's wrath, God's intercessor, and God's mercy. Uh, Last week, we spent most of our time on those first two points, God's wrath and God's intercessor. This week, I want to focus on that last point, God's mercy, but... Before we get there, we need to do a quick review uh, from last week, and I would encourage you, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, that um, you uh, can listen to it online. It would give more context to the sermon this week. But let, let's do a quick review, and let's start with God's wrath. We've spent time on this. Israel has sinned, and, and their sin against God, against Yahweh, was a horrible sin. Look at verse 7. It says this in verse 7. And the Lord... Said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land. Of Egypt again, this was a, a horrible sin i 've compared it uh, over and over again, compared it to a wife cheating on her husband on the night of their wedding and I said last week, in, in fact, this is much worse because this is not a mere man that Israel sinned against. this is the God of the universe. but I also pointed out in this passage in god 's response to israel 's sin that that God He's not acting irrationally here. He's not responding in irrational anger, in and, and pure emotion uh, because of the sin of Israel. In fact, his words in this portion of Scripture are very intentional, which I hope to point out as we walk through them. But look at verse 9. He says this, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation out of you. Again, I, I said last week that this is a very pivotal point in the history of Israel. Israel is on the verge of destruction being wiped off the face of the earth by God's wrath, and this wrath was completely justified. Israel deserved God's wrath. But this leads to the second point of the sermon. Last week, we saw God's intercessor. Again, these points are all connected. God's wrath led to God's intercessor. Look at verse 11. It says this, But Moses implored the Lord. Now, I pointed out that that word implored uh, is a word of humility, meaning that Moses came in weakness. He, He didn't come... Uh, rebuking God. That's how some people interpreted this, but the, the Hebrew word there indicates that he didn't come as a rebuke. He came in weakness, in humility, right, requesting. Um, Moses implored the Lord and said, and his God, and said, he says four things and four arguments, four really appeals that we went over last week. the The first appeal, he appeals to God's fatherly love. verse 11, again, this is what Moses says. He says, "O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He's reminding God that this was his people, your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Out of his love for for Israel, God saved Israel out of uh, Egypt. In fact, in Exodus, God even calls Israel, Israel, his firstborn son. Second, Moses appeals to God's glory. Look at verse 12. It says this, why, why shall the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? In other words, Moses is asking God, what will the nations say if you just destroy Israel in the wilderness? That you saved Israel only to bring them out to the wilderness to consume them and destroy them with your wrath? What will the nation say? What about your glory? Third, he appeals to God's mercy. The end of verse 12, Moses just flat out says, Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In other words, he's appealing to, to God's mercy and his merciful nature. And finally, he appeals to God's faithfulness in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham, the promise that he gave to Abraham and and Moses is appealing to God's faithfulness in other words Moses knows that Israel deserves God's wrath he knows that they deserve God's wrath so the only thing he can do at this point is ask humbly in weakness ask for God to show mercy he appeals to the character of God he appeals to his love his fatherly love his glory his mercy and his faithfulness, he pleads, in other words, for God's mercy, and, and really in a beautiful, elegant, and wise way. Therefore, again, these points are connected. God's wrath led to God's intercessor, which resulted in God's mercy. And that's the last point of the sermon. This is where we're going to spend our time this, this morning. God's mercy. Again, if you would look at verse 14, it says this. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Again, that's God's mercy. Israel deserved God's wrath, but in verse 14, Yahweh, the Lord, right? Yahweh relented. God relented. Now, the word relented is an important word. Uh, The NASB translates this, the Lord changed his mind. About the harm which he said he would do to his people, now, I want to be clear that's not necessarily a bad translation, because the Hebrew word "relented," translated in the ESV, means something like changing one's mind, changing one's mind out of pity or out of compassion. So again, it's, it's not necessarily a bad translation, but this leads to a question: Can God actually change his mind? It's an important question because the Bible seems to consistently, throughout Scripture, say the exact opposite. Let me just quote a a couple of passages to to prove this point. Numbers 20, verse 19, and and before I even read this, I want to point out this is the same exact author as the author of Exodus. He says this, God is not man, that he should lie, or son of man, that he should change his mind again the same author saying that God doesn't change his mind 1 Samuel 15:29 and this is the NASB because uh, I just want to quote from the NASB because it's the same Hebrew word that's used here it says this also the the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind same Hebrew word for he is not a man that he should change his mind God even goes as far as to say in Malachi three: six, "For I, the Lord, do not change. Not only does God not change his mind, but he claims to be immutable. In other words, unchanging. He doesn't change at all. Even in the New Testament, we see a very similar thing. James one verse seventeen says this: "Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights." With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Again, God doesn't change. Therefore, he doesn't change his mind. So what's going on in Exodus 32 then? And just so you know, this is a hermeneutical principle that we should apply to Scripture. Always when you come to a passage that seems odd or strange, you always take the clearer passages or the majority of passages to interpret that passage. So we know that God doesn't change his mind. What is going on in Exodus 32 then? Well, I believe if you really examine this passage, you'll find out that that God never truly intended to destroy Israel. He always planned on showing mercy. So if that's the case, he never truly changed his mind. Therefore, there's something else going on here than God necessarily changing his mind. Something that I believe is very important. Something that displays God's grace and mercy, I believe, in, in a really an amazing way. But to understand what's going on, we need to understand the context of our passage. This is why we've slowed down. This is why we've spent so much time on Israel's sin. This is why I've I've made this a two-part sermon series, because I really wanted to get this right we need to understand the context and really we need to understand three things the near context the context of the passage itself the the context of the book of exodus and then finally the the biblical context the the whole scripture the meta narrative of scripture the context of scripture as a whole so let's start with the near context and move our way outward there there's some clues i believe in god's words to moses that seems to hint that there's more going on Then at first glance, or first read, I guess, right? There are signs, in other words, of God's grace and mercy, even in his proclamation of destruction and wrath. Let me show you what I mean. First, just think about this for a second. God talks to Moses in the first place. And don't overlook that. God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's completely just. There's no one above him, there's no authority above him, there's no one he answers to, in other words. So why check in with Moses before acting? Why care about Moses' thoughts? Uh, We think about that. And not only that, as I've pointed out over and over again, this wrath that he was going to pour out on Israel was an appropriate response. Israel deserved wrath. They've sinned horribly. So why tell Moses about it? As soon as Israel sinned, he could have sent fire from the sky, consumed them with his holiness, wiped them out, and been completely justified in doing so. But he doesn't. What does he do? He talks to Moses. And what does he say? Look at what he tells Moses, the very first thing, verse 7. He says this And the, and the Lord said to Moses, What? Go down. Now, if God was going to destroy Israel, why tell Moses to go down to them? If he was going to destroy Israel make a great nation on Moses, why tell. Moses to go down. Remember, Moses is at the top of the mountain where God's presence is. Israel's at the base of the mountain, the camp of the mountain, and he tells them to go down to Israel. Remember, Moses is with God. Why say, go to the people if he's just going to destroy them? Look at what God says, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. Now, I believe that's judgment, and I made that point last week. God is giving Israel exactly what they wanted. He's even using their own words. They, they said that, that Moses was theirs. They, he's the one that brought them out of Egypt, that they were his people, and so God says, go down to your people. But I think there's more going on than that. By God's grace, he's also connecting Israel to Moses. He calls Israel your people. Therefore, I believe that that this is a hint of God's grace. God is helping Moses, in other words, to identify with the Israelites. I go down to your people. I mean, this was Israel's. This was Moses's family. This was his nation, his people, his blood. This brings us. Me to the last and, and probably the greatest hint of God's grace in the near context, right? At the end of God's speech with Moses, before Moses intercedes for Israel, look at what God says, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Why does God say, let me alone? In other words, how is Moses in God's way? It seems like God is conditioning his threat. In other words, he's saying something like this, Moses, if you let me alone, I will destroy the Israelites and make a great nation out of you. But that leads to a question. What would happen if Moses didn't let God alone? In other words, God is saying something like this, You are standing in the way of me and the destruction of Israel. What are you going to do, Moses? This is what Babard Childs writes, an Old Testament scholar from Yale. He says this, God vows the severest punishment imaginable, and then suddenly he conditions it. As it were, on Moses' agreement, he says, Let me alone that I may consume them. The effect is that God himself leaves the door open for intercession. He allows himself to be persuaded. In other words, God sets up Moses to intercede for Israel. And I believe this was God's plan from the beginning. God was, in other words, completely sovereign over the entire interaction with him and Moses. He wasn't out of control. In fact... The exact opposite isn't true. He was in complete control of everything that was happening. And this is not a a random interpretation, by the way. This interpretation goes all the way back to the 4th century. Jerome, the great church father, wrote this. Consider the compassionate kindness of God when he says, let me alone. He shows that if Moses will continue to importune him, he will not strike. In other words, what does he say? Do not cease your persistent entreaty, and I shall not strike. God was encouraging Moses to be Israel's intercessor. He was encouraging him to speak up, because I believe he was planning on being merciful From the beginning. This was all a part of God's plan. But, and this is so important, listen to this. But, his mercy would come through Moses' intercession. He was always planning on being merciful, but his mercy would come through Moses' intercession, his prayer. Which leads to a question, and the question is, very profound. It's why? Why? Why is God conditioning his wrath on the intersection of Moses? Why why leave this up to Moses, in other words? Why why make Moses? Here's, here's the question why make Moses the hero of the story? It's an important question we should ask. Here's why. Moses is the mediator, he's the go between. This brings me to the second thing we we need to look at, right? We've looked at the near context, and and the near context tells us that clearly there's something more going on here. So let's look at the book of Exodus as a whole, because this was meant to to read, right, together. It's a story. It's a narrative. If if you pull just one portion out, then you're missing exactly what the author is trying to tell you. Listen, God has prepared Moses for this moment. He's prepared Moses for... For this moment, from the beginning, the beginning of Exodus. Think about the book of Exodus, right? Forty years in the household of Pharaoh, being educated and trained by the best schools in the world at that time. Forty years in the wilderness, shepherding sheep in the wilderness. Living with a nomadic people, learning how to to live and lead a nomadic people. Remember Israel? Israel? We'll end up spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness as a nomadic people themselves, and Moses will be shepherding them. Think about Moses' calling, the burning bush. God tells Moses to go. Go do what? Go speak. Go communicate to Israel and Pharaoh, to both. Speak on God's behalf. And how did Moses respond to this calling? Let me just read Exodus 4, verse 10. It says this. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. In other words, I'm not an elegant communicator, God. Maybe he had a speech impediment. We, We don't know, but there's some reason that 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 Moses believed this. I'm not good at speaking. Why would you send me? Well, what does God tell him? Verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, "Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, God was telling Moses that I am completely sovereign over your life, completely sovereign over even your mouth, Moses. In Exodus Moses' words on behalf of Israel were beautiful, elegant, wise, theologically sound. His words were compelling. He makes four amazing arguments, four appeals to the character and nature of God. God prepared Moses for that moment. Not only that, what was Moses' role in Exodus? It's been clear up to this point that, that he was the mediator, right? He's the go-between. He goes between God and Israel, right? After Egypt in the wilderness, in Exodus, uh, verse 19 through 32, we've been in that portion of Scripture for, for months, right? What happens with Moses? God's at the top of the mountain, Israel's at the bottom of the mountain, and Moses goes up and down, up and down, Up and down, over and over and over and over again. Moses is the go-between. He's the mediator. He represents God to the people. He speaks on God's behalf, but also, and this is so important, he represents the people to God. Therefore, in Exodus, the only way to God was through Moses was through Moses. That means in Exodus 32, when when Moses intercedes for the people, you know what he was doing? Just his job. His calling. He was representing the people before God. He was making a plea on their behalf. He was interceding as Israel's mediator. But This leads to another question, and this next question is is a more fundamental question. Why use Moses as a mediator? Why does God use a man—I want you to think about this—why does he use a man to interact with his people, with the Israelites? Now, throughout the book of Exodus, I hope you've asked— this question or at least a form of this question or maybe a question like this is just simply why why is Moses placed in such a high position I mean he speaks to God face to face as a friend that's what it says in Exodus why is Moses placed in such a high position in fact in Exodus 32 there's a key question and really this question is the key in in understanding the passage we need to ask this question and get an answer why use Moses' intercession as the means of showing mercy to Israel why use Moses' intercession as the means of showing mercy to Israel why does God make Moses a mediator in the first place here's the answer and really key in understanding the passage Moses is a type of Christ Moses is a type of Christ. In other words, Moses' life was meant to point Israel forward to their Messiah, to Christ, to a greater Moses. And I believe this is especially true in Exodus 32. And this brings me to the last thing that we need to look at, and that's the context of the Bible as a whole. Let me show you what I mean when I say Moses is a type of Christ, because the Bible as a whole purposely connects Moses' life to Jesus. Just think about their births for a second. During the time of Moses' birth, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, ordered a a mass killing of male Hebrew babies under the age of two. Yet, Moses survived. During the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod ordered a mass killing of every male Hebrew baby under the age of two. Yet, Jesus survived. Moses' life was spared because he, as a baby, his parents sent him to the royal house of Egypt to be protected. Jesus' life was spared because his parents fled to Egypt so that he would be protected. The main character in Moses' life, his birth story, the main character in Moses' birth story was his sister, whose name was Miriam, the Hebrew equivalent of Mary. The main character in Jesus' birth story was his mother, whose name was Mary. There were 400 years of slavery before Moses' birth, 400 years from the end of the book of Genesis to the beginning of the book of Exodus, where God seemingly doesn't speak to his people at all. There were 400 years of silence before Jesus' birth, 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God didn't speak to his people. And that, that, this goes beyond just the birth stories. Think about this. Moses came from, a, from royalty. He was the, the prince of Egypt. But he left his high position to identify with the Israelites. Jesus came from royalty, the son of God. But he left heaven to come down to identify with man. Moses was sent into the wilderness for 40 years before beginning his ministry. Jesus was sent in the wilderness to be tempted 40 days before beginning his ministry. And I can just keep going. Moses brought the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. Jesus brought the Israelites out of slavery from sin. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. Moses fed the Israelites miraculously with bread from heaven. Jesus fed the Israelites miraculously by multiplying bread. Here's the point. Jesus' life and Moses' life are connected. They're connected because Moses is a type of Christ. Moses' life, in other words, was meant to point us forward to Christ. Point us forward to the truer and greater mediator. To the truer and greater prophet. To the truer and greater Moses. His life was meant to point us forward to To Christ, to Jesus. And listen, I want to be clear. Moses understood this. He understood that his life pointed forward to a greater Moses. In fact, he says this in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord, your God, will rise up from you a prophet like me. Someone whose life will mirror my life. He's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. In other words, a Jew. It is to him you shall listen. In other words, there's a a prophet coming like me. This is what Moses is saying. His life will mirror mine. This this prophet that's coming like me, but, but greater than me. It is to him you shall listen. In other words, God used Moses to point Israel forward to Jesus. He used Moses to point Israel forward to Jesus. Moses' life, in other words, his life was a revelation of Jesus, the coming Messiah. And this is why Exodus 32 is so important. Let's go back to our passage this morning and just rethink it. The golden calf narrative as a whole. We know that, that there's something more going on in our passage because of the near context. Right? God gives hints of his grace throughout right, this passage. We know that, that God has prepared Moses to be the mediator, the go-between, because of the book of Exodus, right, to stand between God and Israel, and he was just doing his job when he started praying on behalf of Israel. And we know that, that God did all of this to point Israel forward to Christ— Because the Bible as a whole is clear that Moses is a type of Christ. So let's go back to our passage and and put it all together. Remember, God's wrath is aimed at Israel because of their sin, a horrible sin. Yet Moses, as Israel's mediator, intercedes for Israel. He pleads for God's mercy and grace. He prays on Israel's behalf. Therefore, God is merciful. Listen, I want to be clear. Exodus 32 doesn't teach us that God changes his mind. That's not the application of this passage. To be honest and blunt, that's just a shallow, unbiblical understanding. God wasn't reacting at all. He was in complete control of every little detail of what was going on in Exodus 32 he was in control so that we would have a clearer picture of the Messiah to come. The intercession of Moses points us to Christ. It points us to Christ. Let me show you that this is God's intended interpretation of this passage. If you would, turn to Psalm 106, verse 19. Thanks, Will. I don't have to bend down. Psalm 106, verse 19. Again, I want to show you that this was God's intention. He intended this this whole portion, what was going on, uh, to point to Christ. Look what it says in verse 19. They, this is Israel, they they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God... For the image of an ox that eats grass. And we've spent a lot of time on this passage. We've learned, right, that, that this is us. This is not just Israel, this is us. Because Paul reflects back on this whole narrative, and especially this psalm. And he writes Romans 1, which is talking about all mankind. This is us. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonderful works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Again, horrible sin. This is, this is our sin. Verse 23, therefore, in other words, because of this great sin, therefore he said he would destroy them. It's God's wrath. Had not Moses his chosen one. Just so you know, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name title. It's the Greek equivalent of Messiah, which means anointed one or chosen one. And not Moses, his chosen one stood in the breach before him. Now the Hebrew word that's translated breach here is a military term. It, It means someone or something that stands in between the wrath of an approaching army and the people in danger. So let me just read it again and put it all together. Verse 23, Therefore he, this is God, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach between God's wrath and God's people. Listen, this is our story. If you're a Christian this morning, if you put your faith, in Jesus this morning, you've been saved from, from your sins. This, this is our story. We are just like the Israelites. Paul makes this very clear in Romans 1. Our, our command was to worship God. Our sin, again, according to Romans 1, is that we worshiped other than God. We worshiped the creation and not the creator. Therefore, God's wrath was aimed at us because of our sin it was not for Jesus, God's chosen one, standing in the breach to turn away God's wrath from destroying us. Moses is a type of Christ. In other words, Moses' role is meant to point us to Christ. Moses points us to our need for a Savior, our need for a mediator, our need for Christ. Christ. 1 Timothy 2 5 says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. And you know what? He's the perfect mediator because unlike Moses, he's not just a mere man, he's both God and man. Who can stand in between the gap better? Hebrews 3.1 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses. Again, there's a comparison. Just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. But, but listen to this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. There's not just a comparison. Jesus is the truer and greater Moses. Not only did he stand in the gap between God's wrath and us, but he endured God's wrath for us so that we could receive God's mercy. In other words, God's wrath was satisfied on the cross so that whoever believes in Jesus... They could receive God's mercy, the forgiveness of sins. Listen, Exodus 32 is our story. It's our story. But I want to be clear. We are not Moses. We are not the hero of the story. We're Israel. Sinners who deserve, 100% deserve God's wrath, and that's it. Completely dependent on our mediator, completely dependent on Christ. Listen, I, I'm passionate about this. This, this portion of scripture, this, it's one of the reasons I've dragged this out for two signs. I'm passionate about this, because the, the truths that are taught in Exodus 32 is, is personal to me. It's personal to me because I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner who needs a mediator, who needs an intercessor, who needs an advocate. Let me just end here this morning and to make this applicable to us. If you, if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. And I, I know this is deep theology and we've dived deep into this text but there's an important application that comes from this text that we see throughout the New Testament. 1 John 1, 8, and I didn't talk to Will this morning, obviously. He had me stolen in the back there so he could surprise me. Uh, I didn't know he was going to get up this morning and talk about 1 uh, John 1, 8 and 9, but i uh, tell you what, I think the Spirit has led us here this morning. 1 John 1, verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This this is talking to Christians. This is talking to the church. If you're a Christian this morning and you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But then we get to verse 9, which is beautiful. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I say this is personal to me because I don't think there's a verse in Scripture that I go to more than this one. Verse 9. Over and over again, when I see sins in my life, which is it's just daily, I, rem- I remind myself of, of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This means if you're a Christian this morning, God will forgive you when you sin. He'll forgive you. If you confess your sins to him, cry out for mercy, confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Verse 10 says this, if we say we have not sinned, John goes back, we we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, My little children, I am writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. In other words, John's saying, hey, don't take this as a license to sin. That's not the point. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, what Moses did in Exodus 32 on the top of the mountain, is he stood there with God, interceding for Israel, advocating for Israel. It's what Jesus is doing for us right now in heaven, at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us when we sin. He's reminding God the Father of the cross. He's reminding God that it would be unjust, unjust to pour out his wrath on us because Jesus has already paid the price for our sins. That's why he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know how comforting that is? As a sinner... Jesus is our greater Moses. He's our advocate. God's very own son is interceding for us. And before you make God the Father out to be a tyrant of some sort who sent him. And why did he send him? John 3:16. For who for God so loved the world that he sent his son God the Father, Yahweh, set up Moses. He sent Moses to be the intercessor for Israel and God out of his love for Israel. In the same way he loved us, he sent his Son to be our intercessor, our mediator, our advocate who died on the cross for our sins. God's wrath leads to God's intercessor, which resulted in God's mercy. Listen, God is a merciful God. He's proven this by sending his Son. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded as we walk through this passage, Lord, that we deserved your wrath. That justice demanded wrath on us for sinning, just like the Israelites, Lord. Yet because of your mercy and grace, and because of your glory, and because of your character, because of who you are, Lord, you sent your Son out of your love to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. Therefore, it would be unjust for you to pour out your wrath on those who who've put their faith in Christ because those sins have been paid for. God, help us to, to live boldly because of those truths. Not because of, of any righteousness or goodness in us, Lord, but because, because of your Son and what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us as he intercedes and prays for us, Lord, daily. we could be more than conquerors, as the end of Romans says, as we celebrate God's resurrection or Jesus's resurrection next week, Lord, that not only did he die for us, but he was raised and right now intercedes for us, Lord. What an amazing thought. In his name, we say amen.